This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. There I was, listeners know by now, Richard McSpadden, our friend and colleague and the host of this podcast series, was killed in an aircraft accident on October 1st outside of Lake Placid, New York. All of us at AOPA and the Air Safety Institute continue to grieve Richard's passing. We lost a tremendous leader and one of General Aviation's most passionate advocates. As we noted, over the next few months, we'll release the few remaining episodes of There I Was featuring Richard as host, including today's. What follows is the first of a two-part episode recorded the week before Richard's death. Our guest is a retired Air Force pilot, CFI, CFII, MEI, and seaplane rated. He's currently an airline pilot with a major airline and a lifelong backcountry pilot. Backcountry flying was a particular passion of Richard's, as you'll hear. We hope you enjoy this special episode of There I Was. A normal touchdown, I would touch down, and then you immediately get that sense of deceleration. Well, on this occasion, I touched down and I just, I didn't get any sense of deceleration. And so that in and of itself was very off-putting. I looked out the window and that's when I, I knew that, you know, the, the goose was kind of cooked. The tires were, I mean, just absolutely soaking wet. And not just soaking wet, I could see water squirting out from the sides of the tires as I was sliding. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today, we have an exciting guest. We have a backcountry pilot, airline pilot, and he chooses to remain anonymous, and we get that, and we want to honor that for this discussion. Today, he's going to tell a story about flying in the Idaho backcountry along what's called the Big Creek Four when things didn't go as planned, and we're happy to have him tell his story. Welcome to the There I Was podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you having me and giving me the time. So let's just start with, uh, can you share a little bit about, I thought it was really fascinating. Talk to us about your background and how you got into this backcountry flying in the first place. Yeah, well, growing up in Idaho, we live, uh, grew up in a, in a very rural section uh, in southeastern Idaho. And so a lot of it was born out of necessity. I learned from my, my grandfather. He was a man of of laws, but some of the laws he didn't necessarily prescribe to, and he hate, hated paying people to do stuff he thought he could do himself. So he taught himself how to fly, and uh, we used that mainly to hunt and fish and, you know, survey the land, uh, the, the ranch and the, the farm. And so I learned from him 
in an old J3 Piper Cub, no electrical system, you know, everything a tailwheel student dreams but is scared of, you know, stiff bungees and small tires. But uh, that's how I learned. That's amazing. He's flying the Idaho backcountry all throughout <laughs> it in a J in a J three. Which which engine did he did he have in it? Uh, I'd have to think back. I want to. I think it was uh, sixty. I want to say it was sixty five horses. <laughs> I was so young, so young then. Yeah. That uh, to me, it felt like a thousand horsepower. But uh, it was a wonderful way to grow up because my granddad and the the gentlemen he flew with and were around were just very no nonsense no nonsense pilots there was obviously risk but they valued uh safety above all else and so i learned not just how to you know read the ridges and and use them to my advantage and how to be how to be safe flying in and out and understand the terrain but more the minimum of what you need to carry and how to carry it and who to talk to and and just those kinds of plans that Really, the without the Idaho backcountry can just it can turn deadly rather quickly. Yeah, you know, there's such value in that because he he had to flying a J three with pretty much just stock equipment, not be intimidated by the conditions, respect them, but he had to learn to use the conditions to help the airplane and get the lift he needed and all that, right? So he had to very much understand that. And you, it sounds like you just kind of grew up sort of assimilating that and learning it as you flew along with him. Yeah, we sure did. And, you know, the basic principles back then was, uh, you know, you went in in the morning and you didn't come out till the evening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There was there was no flying in the middle of the day back then. And so we just kind of picked where you wanted to hunt and fish for the day and that's where you went and that's where you stayed. And, you know, just sunny side of the ridge gives you more lift and, you know, approach it at a certain angle. So if you get a sinker right before you top it, you can turn away and, you know, the canyon turns and all, the, all those wonderful things. But it's those lessons that just were my day in and day out growing up and through my, my younger flying years that uh, it's, it's everything I use every time I go there, which is every year now. Sadly, I don't live out there. Uh, anymore right now, but I'm very thankful that they've become second nature to me, realizing now that just how how valuable they can be for somebody who uh, did, wasn't as fortunate as me to grow up there. So you have this amazing background flying back there, and now fast forward, you go through all of your training, and you're obviously instrument rated, ATP rated, you're an airline captain, you've gone on to do these fabulous things, yet just talking to you, I think your heart is still in that backcountry flying. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, there's nothing like it. It's, uh, it's such a stark contrast to the thousands and thousands of people you see every day in these big terminals. And then you can go into the backcountry and just disappear. And it's, it's just the most amazing amount of solitude you can find if you're really looking for it. And so it takes me back not just in my childhood, but also kind of is able for me to separate and balance all that hustle and bustle from the day to day to those precious moments of quiet that are harder and harder to come by. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's go up to the day of your incident. You said you go back there every year. So you were back there with a friend. Walk us through kind of your day and, and what you were doing and where you were flying. Yeah. So our plan was we kind of stage out of two different places. We'll stage out of Driggs 
when we're doing uh, Eastern State and Montana, and then we'll fly across the valley and stage out of Nampa, which is where a lot of my family lives. And uh, when we want to do Frank Church and, and all that, the Oahis and stuff like that. So we had, the plan was to go out of Nampa. We're going to stop in Johnson Creek, set up camp. And then we were just going to spend the day that the target was upper and lower loon to go fishing. But we decided to take Big Creek down that direction just to see how things were. And there was really no plan per se to do anything in Big Creek. Those airfields, Dewey Moore, Vines, they're great bucket list if you have the airplane and you have the, the training and the practice to go in there. But for yearly visits, like they just don't hold any value to me. But Mile High is one where I've probably been 50 times with my grandfather and, and by myself. And so it does carry, and it's just, it's just supremely unique compared to all other <laughs> the, the places we land back there. And so I really, really do have a soft spot for that. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit because those are, there's the Big Creek Four, right? You got Mile High, Dewey Moore, uh, Simons and Vines, right? Which are probably, would you say, the four most demanding strips in, in the Idaho backcountry? And I, I, would, I would posture they're four of the most demanding strips anywhere in the country. Would you agree? Yeah, I would definitely agree. And anybody who's flown back there, and has, uh, I would highly recommend as an Idaho native and a backcountry pilot, if you plan on flying in Idaho, join, even for the year, the Idaho Aviation Association. They've got wonderful maps. They have a backcountry book. It's probably a pretty famous book by now from anybody who's flown back there. But it it gives pictures and data on every one of these strips. And they've gone so far as to give them kind of a, a difficulty index. And they explain the index in the book. So the folks that live in Idaho and know Idaho have indexed, I think, off the top of my head, I want to say the most difficult is a 50. And Dewey Moore, and I think Mile High is a 50, and Dewey Moore is a 49. So even the folks that live in Idaho consider those to be the most technically difficult. And, and, and really, it's just, you know, there is no way out if things don't go right. And so, but, but yes, I would, I would definitely agree with you in that manner. Yeah. And so in this case, you're going into Mile High because it's a place you've gone really your whole life, starting with your granddad going in there in a place you hunted. And so you were mentioning to me, I thought it was kind of touching. You just you just like to go in there and you'll set up a little small little day camp and, you know, fix yourself some coffee or lunch or something and just kind of sit there and take it in and have some great memories of your granddad. I do. I carry a, I carry a jet boil and an AeroPress just literally for that. <laughs> go in and just kind of take it in and have a cup of coffee in, uh, in his honor, because I, I can't remember the man without one in his hand. And uh, so, yeah, it's just fun to reconnect and in a funny way play, pay tribute. So that whole connection piece, I got to share with you, there's a place out here on the Cheat River that's a Cheat River airstrip and it's just this magnificent place it reminds me of of being out west there and i'll do the same thing it's it can be a challenging (laughs) strip to get into i don't have the background you do with your with your granddad there but it's a place where i'll get up on a sunday morning and i'll take just just my coffee and my breakfast stuff and i'll fly out to the cheat river airstrip and i'll just sit there it's on an island in between the in the cheat river and just sit there and make some coffee and just enjoy the the nature and the beautiful backcountry so I kind of do the same thing where I can on the East Coast. So I, I get what you're doing. You have another element to it. You just love remembering that place with your granddad. I do. And, and those moments are 
I mean, outside, you know, the cost of buying the airplane and the fuel, you can't buy them, (laughs) you know, so they're, they're valuable. That's uh, yeah. So you guys were flying the big Creek and pick it up from there. Like, it sounds like you decided to go back into mile high. Yeah. We were uh, just kind of bebopping around for lack of better words, just kind of spending some time flying and taking it all in. And, um, I saw mile high and I was like, you know what? I, I hadn't really planned on doing it that day, but any day's as good as the next, as long as the environment's right. So we'd been in the valley maybe 15, 20 minutes by then. And so we just kind of kept in the valley. That was one of the, the old tenants of my granddad is like, spend some time in the area where you go diving into a spot because you just want to get a sense of the, the wind and, and the, the, the environment. And so we did that. And then uh, my friend, he's, he was trailing behind me and I decided uh, to go down and do my obligatory low passes. You know, most, most folks one pass and they kind of call it good, but it was taught to me and I highly recommend more than one minimum two. And if at all possible from different directions, because I'll reference my granddad a million times and I apologize, but his point to that was not everything looks good from the other side. (laughs) So, and he's right. He's right. The first time I landed at Dewey Moore and turned around I figured my airplane was going to have to be helicoptered out of there. <laughs> that, <laughs> that ridge looked so close. I was like, golly. Anyway, so did that, and mile high looked like mile high always has. And so there, were, there was zero indicator I could get from all I had done that there was anything different down there than in had ever been. There were some clouds in the area, and there were some storm clouds around, and I think the week prior they had gotten – some rain, but in all the times I'd ever experienced mile high, like, you know, it's so steep that water just doesn't hold there very well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'd gone in there with my granddad, you know, just several hours after a pretty heavy shower and it was, it was fine. So that was the experience I drew upon and that's what it all looked like to me in the moment. So I decided that, uh, to go ahead and do it for those that aren't familiar when you're lining up, there's a uh, kind of a dirt patch there below where the, the first point where you can put a wheel down and most of us that have been there kind of know it to be the elk wallow and for me and my airplane about 45 miles an hour gives me a lot of margin above stall and i don't have a ton of energy to dissipate once i touch down and so i'll aim at that elk wallow pitch touchdown and I, I i've put everything on my airplane i can to make it as easy and as low threat as possible so i'm running aired down 31 inch tires have acme aero suspension all the way around you've got the kind of airplane to do these kind of demanding backcountry strips i mean just just the stock carbon cub like you're flying it you know is, is a fantastic airplane but you've added some elements that you mentioned that made it even more capable yeah let's talk to him about mile high a little bit that strip is what, it's about six, six seven hundred feet long, and it's got a pretty steep incline, right? It's, it's what's called a one-way strip, and our listeners may not be, some of them may not be familiar with the concept that in the backcountry, there are actually several strips where there's really only one way in. And at some point, you have to make a commitment that that airplane is going on the runway because there is no go-around. So you know that going in, and you prepare for that, right? And so mile high is a one-way strip, right? You come in one way, you turn around and take off the other way. It is, yes, sir. And it's it's interesting because it's not a one-way strip that people would 
in their minds classically think of as a one-way strip and i'll explain so it it's got a i would call it two parts in my opinion from where you can touch down there's a little bit of a right dog leg and if you take every blade of grass i want to say they'll call it about 550 give or take but there's a, an element to the left which is the flat part where we'll kind of where we'll park once we've landed and from where you touch down if you veer to the left towards that, best of my knowledge, you've got maybe just a little over 300, maybe maybe just barely 400 before you hit the rocks and the severe downside on the other side going down into the ravine. Steepness, I don't know grades real well, but I would say it's, I know on, a, on an attitude indicator, it's about 17 to 18 degrees nose high. What that turns into to a percentage on grade, I don't know, but it's it's steep. And that's what makes it usable, I think, you know, in any regard. Yeah. But as far as the one way in, one way out, I think most people in their minds build that into you're flying into the box canyon, right? You don't have the power to get over an obstacle. Yeah. I think is the classic vision. But with mile high, what it is, it's an energy problem. It's not an obstacle problem. Right. And so once you once you touch down you just don't have the energy to give it power, accelerate up that steep hill at that high of a density altitude and, and go anywhere. Right. Mile high, right? So you're up around, exactly. it's around 6,500 feet or something like that, right? Somewhere in there. Yep. Yep. Give or take. I think on, on that day, the density altitude was right at 5,009 something. It's right at six. Okay. Yeah. Which, when I'm flying in the backcountry, that's all I look at, right? There's, that's, you know, density altitude is the only altitude your airplane knows. Everything else are mathematical G whizzes for us to use, right? So I'll switch. I have a G3X, and I'll I'll switch it to to density altitude. That's about all I pay attention to. Yeah, interesting. And so, you know, a demanding strip is definitely not the first one you try when you go into the backcountry. In fact, I've been back there before and flew with some really experienced people. And we had we had, had a good day flying the backcountry and I felt on my game and they were going in a mile high. And I thought, eh, just, you know, not yet. Not for me yet. Right. So <laughs> it's one that you got to think uh, you got to have the right airplane to do it. You've got to have the right training. And you've got to be proficient and ready to go into it. So, and it sounds like, you know, you were, you had done your low passes. So, you know, you were feeling pretty good. Yeah. And that's one of those, any of them, you know, to your point, proficiency, aircraft capability, familiarity, all those things. But if you don't approach it with the right attitude, none of those three are going to help you. So I would add on to that confidence. If there's even a hint of doubt in your brain that you can, leverage those three important things you mentioned into a successful outcome, then they're going to be squandered and you're running a risk of not having a successful outcome. So kudos to you for, for having all those three in spades, but then deciding, you know, I just don't feel like it's a good idea. Cause to me, so many times the feeling is that's the most important gauge you got. So yeah, if I ever get a hint of doubt or some irregularity, it's not worth it. I'll come back a different day or even a different season. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really good points you make. So you're coming in on final. You mentioned the, the elk waller. Is that what it's called? A, a waller? Yeah. 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 Okay. They call it a waller. Well, I guess they, I don't know why they do it, but they seem to lay and roll around down there. 
Okay. So it's literally an elk waller. It makes that kind of kind of mud bit there. Okay. So and you, you set your touchdown point for right beyond that and so were you were you feeling pretty good about your approach? Everything coming in looking good so far? Oh, it was great. The wind was there wasn't hardly any wind at all. It was cool, which was kind of shocking. You know, it was the end of June, so we were enjoying some cooler than average temperatures. So the airplane was performing great. Well, I was I was already tasting the cup of coffee there on final. I mean, it was it was wonderful. The airplane was, you know, 45, 46 miles an hour. And just, you know how it is when you fly yeah. these airplanes that get this slow. I mean, it just feels like the world is on, you know, slow motion. Mm-hmm. And you just feel locked in. And uh, that's exactly how I felt. And so right up until right up until touchdown. <laughs> okay. So talk us through it. What happened? Yeah. Um, a normal touchdown. I would touch down and then you immediately get that sense of deceleration and it's not two or three potatoes later. You need to, in, in my specific airplane, you need to add power, a significant amount of power to claw your way to that lower left shelf I was talking about. Well, on this occasion, I touched down and I just, I didn't get any sense of deceleration. And so that in and of itself was very off-putting. So I had a split second, you know, I was like, well, did I bounce? Like, cause it almost felt like I was in the air, but I know I didn't bounce. And I looked out the window and that's when I, I, I knew that, you know, the, the goose was kind of cooked. The tires were, I mean, just absolutely soaking wet and not just soaking wet. I could see water squirting out from the sides of the tires as I was sliding. Mm. So I don't know, there may, there's, there's probably a thousand people that have been there more times than me that have experienced that, but I've never seen water like that a mile high a day in my life. And so at this point, I did what's even more uncharacteristic. I tried using the brakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And zero effect. I like absolutely zero effect. And so it became an energy problem, just like everything is. Instead of being able to track to the right and use that small bit of extra distance off to that little right dog leg there. The airplane, because it was sliding, was now following the natural contour of the mountain, right? Makes sense. Mm. Which started carrying me to the left. Yeah, it's tapering away to the left Correct. and off that mountainside, right? That's, ooh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm sweating sitting here at zero knots and one G, man. <laughs> Knowing the distance and the relative speed that I still had as, as I crowned the top, because even that left piece, it's not flat. It's just... I'll call it crowned. Um, as I got to the top of that, there's a very distinct outcropping of rocks kind of to the right of your nose as you come up that way. And that really kind of marks where it starts the sequences of steeper and steeper downhill. Mm-hmm. And by then I'd hit about the top of that crown and I hadn't slowed down enough to stop. And I'm only going to now carry more speed because I'm starting to go back downhill. So I want to interrupt you here just a second. Yeah. T- tell me about that uh, visual you had where you remember you told me you looked out and saw a piece of grass sitting on your wheel that was perfectly still. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's go back and pick that up because that, to me, painted the picture of what's happening. You're just skidding, sliding along this water. Just sliding, yeah. And okay. that, that, that vision is seared in my brain for the rest of my life because on, on the top of my right tire, it was about a four-inch piece of, of grass just sitting right on top, not moving an inch, just, stare, just staring at me. And it was that moment that, yeah, I knew that uh, physics was in control. And I just was hoping that 
it was going to turn out in my favor. Yeah, your wheels aren't rolling. You're just no, literally sliding. Both completely locked up. And at this point, yeah, it's just carrying me across the side of the mountain. Which is why we can help non-tailwheel pilots maybe understand when you mention the brakes. For those of us who fly a lot of tailwheel, and especially in the in the big tired airplanes like you're flying, you just don't need the brakes. Right. And brakes in a tailwheel would usually cause you more problems than they help solve. Right. So to actually attempt the brakes in an, in an airplane like yours, almost anywhere, but on Mile High where you actually have to accelerate after landing <laughs> to get up the hill, yes. that kind of shows, you know, you you are really running out of ideas and reaching for straws here, like, right. you know, trying to use the brakes even, right? That's I'm just helping people understand, like, the sort of desperation you're beginning to feel here. Yeah, my, my options are, are rapidly falling away. And once I got to the, the that little crown piece on the left side and I saw those rocks and, so, and just felt the speed, I, I, I knew I wasn't going to stop in time. And so now it, it becomes a, you know, how do you want to crash the airplane problem? Not, I don't want to crash. It's, well, how do I want to crash? In the commercial world, that's what all our plans are based off of, right? That's why we have the takeoff briefs that we have and the emergency briefs that we have, because you want to make as many of those decisions on the ground as you possibly can. Cause in that moment that something's happening, it's not the time to start sorting out a plan. And what my final option was that really saved me, saved the airplane and made it a much better of a bad day than it could have been. <laughs> my granddad, he was a character and he used to love, to tease folks that didn't fly on the mountains, he used to call them lowlanders. He was joking, of course, but he loved it. And he would say, he would tell me that a ground loop to a lowlander is a mistake, but a ground loop to a mountain pilot is a tool. And he'd point his finger at me and like, boy, if you ever start running out of room, he's like, just tip the airplane over. That's all you got to do. Just tip it over. We'll get a new wing. We'll get new parts, whatever. And that stayed with me. Hmm. And luckily, that's literally all I had left to do. And I, when, I, when I saw that, that, that sequence of events with the rocks and the speed, that was, oddly enough, he was with me that day because all I heard in my brain was tip it over. And so uh, I hit the right pedal, gave it full throttle, which was, that in and of itself was, you know, kind of instantaneously terrifying because my nose is still pointed over the other end. Yeah. And it's like, well, if this doesn't work, I've just accelerated the problem. So you're really kind of, I was kind of throwing all my eggs in one basket, but it's the only basket I had left. So I did it and she immediately spun. And then that's when I really got the full sense of just how bad it was, was I got it 90 degrees to my direction of travel. And after the event was all over and I had some time to wait for the helicopter, I paced it off and where my tail wheel and my main wheels were, you know, perpendicular to the path. It went 35 more feet, 32 or 35 more feet, dead sideways across the mountain before it finally caught some rocks and went over. Mm. I've never been in a tailwheel going that far sideways and not instantly ground loop. <laughs> I imagine in your cockpit, you know how time accelerates, right, when, or, or right. slows down. I imagine when you turn sideways and you're still sliding – that that seemed to last forever till a wheel finally caught and it tipped on its edge, right? It did. It, it was shock that it was even happening. 
And there was this moment of almost a chuckle, like, well, like what, literally what do you want me to do? <laughs> like <laughs> I've, I've done everything and that's still not good enough. Yeah. Hey, granddad, anything else in the toolbox? Yeah. What's next? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what's next? And, uh, so yeah, at one point I had just when I saw the rocks getting really close, it was still going sideways. You know, just just close your eyes because something's going to happen, and you've done everything you can do at that point. There's no more thought to put into it. But yeah, it it, it caught luckily right above that first kind of drop off, and um, yeah, the whole thing came to a stop. I mean, and it wasn't even by that time I you know it wasn't going terribly fast, so it wasn't I would say even particularly uncomfortable or violent the way it stopped. So it turns sideways, uh, that that mm-hmm. left wheel finally sort of catches, and then the momentum carries it up onto its left wing, right? Correct. So I want to talk about that because I think that is an amazing piece of thinking in that back to the ground loop discussion that your granddad taught you because I've had that thought in my mind, but I've never vocalized it to anyone And that thought has been, if I ever thought I was in a tough spot and running out of room or something, I would intentionally ground loop this thing. And so I'm I'm almost kind of, it's almost kind of rewarding for me to hear you say that, you know, from somebody long time flying the backcountry like your granddad, that that's a tool that they had put for emergencies in their their piloting toolkit there. Yeah, yeah. And how they came to that, I, I don't know, probably the same way. They probably had a few close calls and and came to the same realization you did, which is, you know, your instincts are dead on. And, and I commend you for that. How many backcountry pilots agree to that? I don't, I don't know, but he sure felt it was important to know that. And I can thank him for it because I, I used it and it did stop me from having a much worse accident than what happened. So I guess like it or no, it is a, I consider it a tool. Being a pilot is about passion and dedication. The early mornings, hours invested, constantly learning procedures and details, there's a lot to do. Membership in AOPA makes doing the groundwork easier so you can get into the sky. With the power of thousands of pilots united behind you, get access to exclusive resources, practical benefits, and fierce advocacy that helps enhance and protect your freedom to fly. Join us. Visit aopa.org slash membership or give us a call at 800-872-2672. You really had to commit to that idea because I want to go back to, you know, this is a short strip. And yes, you are going uphill. And if you do it under normal conditions, you know that you really decelerate because of the incline of that hill you're landing on. But at the same time, here you are in this sliding motion. Your aircraft's pretty much out of control on the ground, and your only option left is to try to ground loop this thing. And to do that, you've got to jam power as you're heading to go off this ledge. Man, that's a gutsy move. <laughs> that's a gutsy move. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm, in the moment, I didn't feel very gutsy. <laughs> in the moment, it was just you're just going down a list of things and. It's like, you know, any, anything that even gives you a 1% chance of a good outcome is worth it when you're finished, you know, facing a bunch of zero percenters. So I'm sure you know, it maybe it looks like that in the moment, but, or now, but boy, in the moment, it, I didn't feel gutsy. I felt kind of desperate Yeah. and just hoped it worked. But if anybody hasn't thought of that and is hearing that today, hopefully that's something to think about. they can think yeah. about. And I would, and I would encourage them to think about it 
often because just in anything else, you know, practice makes perfect. And if that's not something that you drill into your brain, then it will not become instinct. And in that moment, it's not going to yeah. register as the right thing to do. I think had you not have had that as a, as a premeditated tool in your kit someday and thought about it and talked to your granddad about it, it's not as if you're going to invent that in the moment, right? Right. I think the fact that you had thought about that before came and was important at, at the time that it happened. So there you are. You're, you're tipped up on your left wing. You've now stopped, you know, the danger of going over the, the mountainside. Now what would you do? Well, my first, two concerns. First concern was fire, as you know, anytime you hit a wing or something like that. And then the second concern was my friend, because <laughs> he was, you know, setting up to come in behind me. And so I was able to get the I'd turn the fuel selector off. And then I immediately got on the radio and I just radio said, hey, it's bad. Don't land. And, you know, luckily caught him in time that he, he wasn't committed. And then it was just uh, at that point getting out and just kind of taking a breath and assessing like, like, holy crap. Yeah, what happened, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> what happened? Like, yeah. how how am I here right now and why? And I'm like everybody else. You know, I, I love my airplane to death. And to see it like that and know that the trip is over and know that all these plans we had are ruined, like, that all just hits you. As, as foolish as that sounds that you would think about something like that, like, it just hits you in the moment. You know, I was so sad in that moment because no more fishing, no more camping, I got all this, like, it just, it all hit at once because now that's, you know, my, my mind could expand to take in more things. And your baby's there, right? I've seen your airplane. It's a uh, beautiful <laughs> carbon cub. And, yeah. and there it is well, all you. dinged up, right? So, yeah, yeah, she's up on her end. And so once I sorted through those feelings, you kind of gulp that down and then you just kind of get to work. And the first thing was like, I want it back on its tires at a minimum. And so because where it was at, I got my cargo straps out. You know, I don't know if there's <laughs> if there's anything anymore as a shameless plug, but the claw tie downs are phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. I got those out and I tied the right main gear to the ground and I tied the tail to the ground. And then um, I took that third cargo strap and I kind of I had to hook it in my pocket because the right wing was so high in the air. I literally had to climb. The, the lift struts and I had to put my foot on the jury strut and literally stretch to reach that right wing tie down. I hooked it, jumped down, put my tie down on the ground. Then it just kind of did this, you know, pull on the big end, pull the tag in tight kind of ratchet deal. Yeah. About five tugs. And she finally came over on her tires, tightened up all the straps. And now I was like, all right, it's on its tires and it's tied down. It's not going to fall off the mountain. And then I just started assessing. I'm like, Idaho backcountry, it's important to us. It's a resource, and I don't want to do anything to damage it. So I wanted to make sure that I didn't lose any oil. The fuel I lost, I lost about a gallon of fuel. And it wasn't out of anything. I thought I'd ruptured the tank somehow, but oddly enough, or funny enough, it was it's such a steep bank angle that the fuel was running out of the air vent on top of the fuel cap. Hmm. And so until that vented low enough, it was about a gallon and a half. And so... I was, I was happy that I didn't really do anything ecologically to the mountain. And the plane was <laughs> in remarkably good condition. I had uh, hit, you know, the, the left wing tip, you know, on, on the carbon cub. It's a, it's a carbon fiber bow that's on the end of that. And I had pushed it in and it had bent one of these little false ribs. So it, it wasn't really deformed. You wouldn't be able to tell other than there's just kind of a, a bit of a wrinkle in the fabric there. But outside of that, 
it was hard to tell that it was it had been damaged at all. About the last three or four inches of the left aileron kind of dog-eared up. And then uh, my left aileron, the horn of my left aileron, got pushed in about a quarter inch. So I was in full belief that I could fly that airplane off the mountain. You know, as the PIC, we're responsible for deciding whether the airplane's airworthy or not. I've gone through my AMP training enough to where I get to sign off to take the test. So I, and I don't want to, I just saved my life. I don't want to go out and then risk it again and die. So I'm not looking to jump in an airplane that's truly compromised, but with where that's at and the circumstances surrounding its remoteness, if the airplane's airworthy, you know, with some minor cosmetic damage, then it behooves you to get it off the mountain. Hmm. So is that what you did? Well, I, I tried. I tried my best. But ultimately, what ended up happening is I had gone far enough over the crest of that low area that no matter how I planned to set up my straps and winch this thing back or move it, I, I didn't feel comfortable that I could maneuver the airplane back to a spot that I could take off again yeah. without running a severe risk of just losing it down the mountain. Mm-hmm. There's a piece of kit, a crucial piece of kit, and this is the one thing I truly regret <laughs> um, that I've always carried with me, whether it's on dirt bikes, snowmobiles, it's always been with me, and uh, it's a block and tackle. I've always had a block and tackle and about 100 feet of rope, about 20 feet of uh, webbing, and some carabiners because I've pulled snowmobiles out of tree wells with it. I've pulled dirt bikes up the sides of hills with it. It's a great self-rescue tool. Mm. And had I had my block and tackle, I would have just been able to winch that puppy right back up to the top and go. But my brother had borrowed it, and so shame on him for taking my stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> given the moment, I was just, just too afraid of losing the airplane off the side. So that's when I just resigned to the fact that both me and the airplane were going to get a helicopter ride. So now you've assessed you don't have any injuries because thankfully you're going pretty slow when it tipped over. Your airplane has a little bit of damage, but stuff you could manage. Mm-hmm. But you've decided not the right thing. to. You, you can't get it off the mountain. And then you'd have had to assess the condition of the runway anyway to get off, right? So, right. So now I've always wondered this because I fly in the backcountry a lot and it's crossed my mind. Like if I had something happen like that, like how do you get out? You, you obviously don't want your friend to land. You know, it's like it's not like you can tell him, land, I'll jump in your back seat, because you don't want him landing in the place you just demonstrated was, you know, not right. suitable. So what'd you do? Well, one of the, what I consider to be required pieces of equipment, if you're going back there, is a satellite tracker and communicator. People have their opinions on what brand and what type. I have my opinion on mine. Which one do you use, and, and tell us why? I chose the Zolio. It's a Z-O-L-E-O. I've had the inReach. I've had Spot. And the reason I chose Zolio was because of the functionality. It operates through your phone like a texting app, like a WhatsApp or anything like that. And so instead of having a cumbersome little digital keyboard to type on or only having pre-existing messages you can send... You can literally just send a satellite message to anybody you have the telephone number of the same way you would send them a text when you're sitting at home. So it just, I felt my ability to communicate to as many people as possible and as clearly as possible was the best 
feature for me, and so that's why I chose it. So you pulled out your Zolio, and yep. who'd you text first? What'd you do? I, I hit the SOS button, and uh, that immediately, it, it's, I, I saved all the messages. They're, they're pretty interesting how, how I have this. It says, you're, you know, it lets you know that the message has been sent, it's been received. So it had gone to the National Search and Rescue Center. They figured out where I was and then basically assigned it to a local law enforcement, which was the, I don't think it's the Clark County Sheriff's Office. I can't remember what county it is, but it was the Sheriff's Office. And I got a, a message from the sheriff's office. We got your message. How can we help you? And it was just me texting back and forth with the sheriff, telling them where I was and what I needed to do. And then they leaped into action, getting their their local search and rescue net. And then right after that, I went ahead and texted a couple of my buddies that are involved in the carbon cup business side of things. And I immediately said, hey, I need to know where I can get a wing, a wing repaired. I need some help with some. I just immediately started like firing off recovery tasks. Mm, yeah, I think a lot of that was just nervousness, boredom. You just want to feel connected again. You know, as much as being disconnected is great. You want to feel like you're doing something, right? Yeah, because you got this adrenaline still pumping. So, so you got the sheriff's office looking for you, but how did you actually get off the mountain and get your airplane off the mountain? So the sheriff's office, I they obviously have. They had my exact lat long. And funny side note, every five minutes, whether you want it to or not, the Zolio will beam an updated position. And I was, and it tells you when it does it. And I started looking back and there was like five or six position updates and they were all off by like, you know how it's like, uh, you know, degrees, minutes, seconds right, yeah. on lat long. They're all off by like a couple seconds. Like it was because I was walking around the mountain. Oh. And it's so accurate, like literally, you know, it would give me my new position 20 feet from the airplane and another position that was like 80 feet from the airplane. And so mm. as I'm walking around the mountain, it's, it's shooting these out. But um, they had my lat long. They asked me to describe it. And then they just started going through their various resources they had available. The one they ended up enlisting to help me is an exceptional organization. I wish it was an organization you could donate to because... I would yearly. It's called Two Bear Air. What I know about it, it's a wealthy gentleman's philanthropic endeavor to supply search and rescue to kind of that northern Idaho, Montana, Wyoming region. And uh, yeah, they came and picked me up and uh, hauled me back. I'm familiar with them. So Two Bear Air, and and they'll only go out in pretty unique circumstances like they need to be able to feel like their service is really needed to get you off so they probably saw the remoteness of your location and your situation and thought okay fits fits the bill fits our criteria so they came and got you you had your airplane tied down how did you end up getting your airplane off and how long did that take well luckily the folks at mccall are spectacular jake at mccall aviation and all the guys at Base Camp Aviation. So Base Camp is who went and got my my airplane. They have several uh, helicopters. Uh, the one they used for mine is called an A Star. I don't I don't know a ton about helicopters, but yeah, I called uh, him the next morning, and he said, "Not a problem. I'm full today, but I can go get it tomorrow." And he headed right up there. And what made it, I think, easier for him, his name's Jeff. Master, master helicopter pilot. I mean, 
in a league of his own is I have built into the top of mine those uh, lift rings that you often see on cubs. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to have a cub and you're going to go in the backcountry and you don't have those, I highly, highly, highly recommend you putting them on there because all he had to do, and it was funny, the conversation we had, I said, listen, <laughs> you're not going to pick up a bunch of parts. Like this is a upright, on its tires, fully flyable airplane. And he goes, yeah, that's definitely going to be more challenging, but not a problem. And so, yeah, he went up there with, you know, his spreader bar and his, you know, straps, and he just hooked right into the top of my airplane and flew it right out. The airplane was on the air, on the mountain, I think, 36 hours, maybe 38. Mm. Yeah. That was a challenge. Uh, I got really, really lucky finding Jeff in the moments, in the, you know, the hour I was waiting for Jeff to get back to me. You know, you're, you're trying to lead turn all this. You're calling every buddy you know and every business with a helicopter and there was nobody mm. everybody was absolutely slammed yeah so that was kind of discouraging in the beginning it's sign of our industry you know the good news is we're we continue to experience so much explosion and growth in aviation general aviation and specifically in backcountry flying aviation and all that's yeah. good. Uh, the challenge that comes with that growth is all, all the service providers are just slammed. You know, they're, they're booked in every part of the business. So, yeah, you were fortunate that they were available to get up there and, and get it. More on Backcountry Flying with Richard and our special guest in Part 2, coming soon. From AOPA and the Air Safety Institute, this is There I Was. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.